Welcome to the Land Ethic Podcast, dedicated to naturalism, conservation, and stewardship. I'm Dylan Banyasco, a landscape designer and outdoorsman from Central Texas. I'm learning from individuals and organizations that are working to improve our relationship with land. Subjects may range from regenerative agriculture to ethical hunting and wildlife management. Please subscribe on your preferred app and follow Land Ethic Podcasts on social media for updates, episode releases, and more. Jeff Laszlo is a fourth-generation owner of the Granger Ranches, a 13,000-acre cattle ranch in Montana's Madison Valley. Over the past 20 years or so, he and a team of public agencies and professionals have been restoring a large wetland on the property, which was drained generations ago for grazing use. What has become known as the Odell Creek Restoration Project has restored some 15 miles of spring-fed streams and 1,000 acres of wetlands. The results include a 900% increase in waterfowl numbers, 600% increase in waterfowl species diversity, improved fishery with reduced water temperatures, the return of rare native vegetation, the reintroduction of imperiled species such as trumpeter swans and arctic grayling, and a vast increase in use for migrating sandhill cranes. With the rising water table, the bottomland also became more productive and better able to support the ranch's cow-calf operation and hay production. The Granger Ranches has actually grown its livestock operations, demonstrating that ecological balance, sustainable ranching, and economic viability can coexist. This work has garnered numerous awards, including the 2010 National Wetlands Award for Private Land Stewardship, and has been the subject of various films and numerous articles. Jeff is the chairman of the Western Landowners Alliance as well, and they released an excellent short film on him and the Odell Creek Project, which is on YouTube as part of their Stewardship with Vision series. We talked about the history of the family ranch, draining of the valley floor, and all about the restoration project, from the impetus through implementation. Jeff was able to articulate the complexity of such an endeavor, and how this sort of local effort has far-reaching positive benefits. You can find more by googling Odell Creek Restoration, I'll post some links and photos as well on the Instagram. Thanks for listening. Here's Jeff. Okay, I'm sitting down with Jeff Laszlo up in uh, Montana. Hey, Jeff, how are you? Very well. It's a beautiful day, and uh, I'm doing great. Thank you. Good. It's beautiful down here in Colorado, too. First off, I for the listeners, I want to explain how I came across you. I've spoken to a few folks in nonprofit work and conservation and uh, specifically the Property Environment Research Center up there in Bozeman and then most recently the Western Landowners Alliance and both of which uh, you have ties to and your name has come up a few times for this project you did up there on your land in Ennis, Montana and I've just been really interested to talk to you. So I tracked you down and I've got some questions about uh, about what you're doing up there with your property. So glad to have you. Well, I'm happy to answer them. And it's a pleasure to uh, share what's been a, a really an amazing uh, journey and experience for me. Um, and I'm just uh, grateful that I've had the opportunity to do what I've done. It's from the look of it, from the from an outside perspective, an incredibly successful wetlands restoration project and as I mentioned to you before we started recording um, I'm, I'm a landscape architect by trade and uh, to see an example like this of such an incredibly successful project with so many different uh, stakeholders I guess involved is really inspirational for me so I've got some some questions about how you made this happen man but if you could kind of give some background for myself and the listeners about your land and um I guess the history of, of your family ranching there, that'd be great. Sure. So um, my mother's side of the family basically started in Butte, Montana, and her grandfather in 1936, when it was uh, very distressed and not very desirable, um, started acquiring ranch land and, and just uh, range land um, in the Madison Valley. And so the family's owned it since 1936. I'm the fourth generation. Every generation has um, 
has uh, approached the ownership and management of the ranch a little bit differently. I followed on the heels uh, and the tenure uh, of my mother, who um, unfortunately is not with us any longer, but um, um, she did a great job with her, what was her focus. And I came in and um, um, had an opportunity to start working on a restoration on part of our ranch, which is River Bottom, adjacent to the Madison River. And this area had been, I would say, heavily used for uh, livestock grazing uh, without much consideration to the uh, resource. And it had also been uh, um, uh, altered in, uh, in starting in the 1950s um, as a lot of areas like this had been uh, drained to try to make it drier actually, to, to lower the water table and make it easier to graze cattle or harvest uh, natural grasses for hay uh, in a very wet area. And this is an incredibly wet area, um, which is fascinating in that we're, we're basically in high desert country here. Yeah. And yet this area is one of, was historically one of the largest wetlands in Montana until it was uh, channelized and, and altered in places. So we started doing that in 2005 and um, I became intrigued by it. I didn't have much of a background in that world, um, conservation, restoration or ecology. But I was very, very lucky to have great colleagues and people that I was working with. So uh, no pun intended, I was a sponge. And uh, very luckily, the results of the project have been such that the various uh, colleagues and partners have remained engaged for now almost 20 years. And we have restored 15 miles of stream channels and 1,000 acres of wetland. Wow. How did that, what was the impetus for this? Did you have this idea or did people approach you? A little bit of both. I would say mainly more people encouraging me to do it. There was one person in particular, I'll give him a shout out, uh, Rob Hazelwood, who at the time was with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, I think the real impetus, as I looked back on it, was that I had a sort of an instinctual um feeling idea that if we were going to continue our legacy, our long-term ownership of the ranch, we had to both do things differently. We had to capitalize on our assets. And um, we also, in my case, or I should say I, and I think it applies to all of us in the family, um, wanted to own a place that we could be proud of. And um, it was, it was experimental. I think by nature, I'm drawn to ideas that are a little outside of the box and maybe, maybe contrarian. And, um, and the first phase of the project in 2005, I didn't think there was much risk in doing it because we were just going to close a kind of a junky drainage canal uh, and, and, and re-excavate a historic stream channel that to be honest, I didn't even know it was there because over the course of the time that it was drained, um, it had grassed in completely. But there was a scar there. And uh, the first phase of the project was a little over 4,000 feet. It was low risk, but I, as I said, I became intrigued and I started envisioning what it would mean to basically improve, restore, uh, put back into good shape, um, everything downstream of that point. Yeah. And there's about 30 to 40 miles of stream channels and, um, you know, zigzagging back and forth. And um, of course, I didn't know much about wetlands at the time, um, but, but that was the impetus. I thought this somehow instinctually, and, and to be honest with you, I think I was right, um, I'm wrong about a lot of things, but I happen to be right about this, um, that this was sort of the starting point for how we would manage the ranch in the future. And that does not mean, and I made this point to the uh, colleagues that I was working with that we're, we're not a wildlife refuge. Although, 
you probably would think we were if you uh, visited. Um, we're a working cattle ranch. We have a large herd and operation. We have a lot of fields under irrigation. And so we had to find a, a balance, a synergy. Um, but in doing this, um, I discovered there was a synergy and, you know, there's such a prejudice, I hate to say it, but there's a prejudice and a fear out there um, that environmental efforts are sort of um, in, in, in opposition to agriculture. And it, that's really not the case. And the people that are out there who are, are just waiting in the wings to help people like me are not against agriculture. And so the balance is really important. And, and I think in our case, and I think in most people's cases, both help each other. And so, you know, by, by restoring the hydrology on the floodplain, we have a lot more vegetation that we're now after 15 plus years of basically uh, um, excluding cattle from this area. We're very carefully grazing in the winter um, which is both improving, allowing new grasses and plants to grow, but also reducing our, uh, the amount of feed that we have to put out for cattle. And so um, last winter was the first winter of doing that. It was very successful. But I, I just want to go back to your question, which was what was the, what was the reason for this? Mm -hmm. And I think the reason was I, I, in, to give a condensed answer, was I saw this as an important asset um, and part of the value, the, the highest value of, of the ranch, both economically and biologically, ecologically. And I, I just kind of knew that it had to be done differently. And I've been very lucky. I've had great colleagues. We have a great manager who's you know on the same page with me. And, um, that was really the beginning. It was both curiosity and, um, I, and, and just knowing that guaranteed the future would be different than the present and that the future, there would be sort of an environmental aspect to the ranch. And, and if I can just add one thing, because I've, I've sort of been connected with the ranch my whole life, um, I wanted to see it be as, as good as it could be. And I wanted to see it healthy and I didn't want to see it misused. And that, those were the things that drove me. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I think when you think back, I hear so many stories about, um, misuse or mismanagement of lands uh, and draining wetlands is like, uh, is a very common example of something that just happened all over the place. Uh, throughout the 20th century. Do you have any insight from, I guess, family members or folks that came before you uh, as to, you know, the logic behind that? I know that was the thought of the day, but, you know, what would make someone do something like that? I think it's, I think it's really simple. I, and I, I've said this many times, it wasn't an evil plot. It was the best thinking of the time that um, you wanted to uh, make as many of your acres usable as possible and as easy to use as possible. And so that, that's what drove um, uh, all, all of the um, changes that we've seen on the land, um, how to make it the most productive, uh, user-friendly. Um, and, uh, and of course, you know, if you go back to the 1950s, um, you know, really the environmental movement wouldn't be starting for another 10 years at least and, um, you know, nobody really considered, you know, it wasn't that they didn't consider environmental impacts. It was they didn't think they were making any. Mm. And so, you know, this, out here in the West, as you know, you know, you look to the horizon and it, it doesn't seem possible that anything you could do could really harm anything because, um, you know, the land is expansive, goes on forever. But it is actually very fragile and it is very limited in terms of how much of this there is. You know, I've heard a statistic that only actually less than 2% of the landmass of the Rocky Mountain West is wetlands and that 90% of all life forms 
use wetlands for either part of their life cycle or all of their life cycle. I think the other fascinating thing to consider is what the definition of a wetland is, because this, this kind of shocked me when I learned it, was there's really only three components. It's um, soil moisture, uh, wetland vegetation, and um, how long during the growing season that the soil retains its moisture. And when you consider that uh, at best, the growing season in this part of the world may be 100 days, 18% um, of that is 18 days that it's, the soil is holding water. And so that's kind of shocking to think that 98% of the land doesn't qualify for that. So it's arid. And, um, and I can tell you firsthand by observing this phase by phase, day by day, year by year, that the, the vegetation change by re-wetting the soil and re-establishing the floodplain is, is incredible. We have over uh, identified over 200 wetland species plants now. And I, I forget the percentage, but some very large percentage of all known wetland species plants in Montana are present in our Odell wetlands. Um, and so, and this is all connected, right? So the vegetation serves the insects, which serve the birds, which, um, uh, and the insects of course also serve the fish. And um, so it's really that connection between hydrology, floodplain connectivity, and all of these other uh, elements that, that have, have allowed the land to heal very quickly actually. And it's ongoing. You know, it's changing all the time. And interestingly, uh, you know, the, this West, the West, I should say, um, including wetlands, was all used by bison at one point in time. And by mimicking how bison graze um, and doing it thoughtfully and not too hard, uh, the grazing has a role in maintaining the health of both, you know, the uplands and the wetlands. And if you don't graze, it, it becomes sort of decadent. So, you know, it's all connected. And my, my role here now is sort of building out from that and, and overseeing the management um, and connecting, connecting the dots between our ranching operation and um, land management. You talked about the complexity of a project like this, all the various... Um, components from geology and hydrology to ecology, I feel like that can be a really daunting process for us as humans to kind of wrap our minds around all the various things that need to happen and the intended or unintended, unintended consequences. I guess, could you talk a little bit about the pragmatics of this project and how you made all that come together? Well, it is complex, and quite honestly, we can't comprehend it. I mean, because... We can't we can't understand all of the natural processes. You know, they're just beyond our ability because they occur basically in geological time, right? And so, it's a constant state of change and evolution, um, which I think we can you know understand to a degree, but we can't understand it all. You know, it has been complex in that we've had a lot of different partners and colleagues. And I think one of the very unusual things about the Odell Creek project is that it was, it was never strictly a fisheries project. In other words, even though it was, a, um, you know, it's a great fishery, um, it was more about water, it was more about floodplain connectivity, it was more about reestablishing wetlands. Um, and so we were very lucky to have a team that included uh, wetland scientists and uh, wildlife experts and hydrologists and um, fisheries biologists, really all of the above. And as we began discussing the potential of the project, the possibility of doing something, all of those factors were given some consideration and um, wh which was reflected in the design, the engineering that went into it. And the engineering itself is very complex we started um, very simply with uh, 
a laser level and a tape measure. Those were our tools before you know heavy machinery showed up. And since then, it, it, the techn technology has expanded to LIDAR imagery gathered from aircraft and drones, um, the use of drones for mapping, uh, uh, GPS machine grade excavation equipment that has the entire engineering plans digitally uh, in the cab and they can literally build to within centimeters of the plan. Um, so it's very precise. Uh, it also, you know, there's an economic element to it too, because we, we don't have unlimited funds. In fact, the funding is very difficult annually. And so, so we have to figure, I, I'm using the Royal we because I actually don't have anything to do with this, but the project managers have to figure out basically how to get the most bang for the buck. And so, you know, they come up with a plan and a budget and that's it. And, um, you know, with, you know, um, despite weather and other things that may come up during the building period, um, they have to meet those objectives. And they're, they're just unbelievable at doing that. Um, you know, including calculating as simple as it is calculating, and it's actually not simple, but what they call cuts and fills. So as they're building, they have to make sure that they have enough material to build, but they don't have so much that it's left over in sky high piles. So, um, you know, the complex, you know, the, there's technical complexity. And I think on my end of what I've sort of been more directly involved with the project, there's the complexity of managing people and working in a team and um, um, keeping everybody moving forward on the same page. And, um, you know, that, that actually we, we've been so lucky because honestly, the people that have worked on this are, are the best. They're great people. We've become friends and um, everybody, it's all about the resource and, and the project. And so, uh, but that is complex. And uh, I'm laughing because I was dealing with something having to do with these complexities just today. <laughs> um, but um, so it, it is complex and it also requires patience, it requires tolerance. It re I like to say that conservation starts with conversation. You have to be able to uh, to identify, to express your, your um, interests, what you'd like to see, what is possible. And there's a lot of compromise involved. You know, um, you have to compromise with yourself, with um, goals. Um, but I, I think in this case, and I think everybody that's been connected with it would, would um, without feeling like they were fluffing their own feathers, would tell you that we've exceeded all the objectives. Um, you know, the outcomes include better water temperature, better water quality, species diversity um, in birds and fish and wildlife and plants. Um, and I would say importantly, um, bringing the community into it to understand that uh, what, the, what the public benefits are to a project like this, um, because you know, if you happen to be watching the news today, you might see the news of this horrific storm coming into Florida, which is a likely a uh, um, symptom of climate change. And, and by what we're doing here, we're uh, our summers are getting hotter and drier. And water scarcity is an issue. And yet on Odell Creek, it's green and lush and the water's flowing and the temperature's good and the fishery's healthy and all of those benefits, um, they don't know where the boundaries of the property are. So they, they extend down uh, stream and that water that we're conserving uh, in the soils, in the wetland soils, uh, in the project area, are used downstream for agriculture, recreation, energy production through hydro uh, electricity, and probably even municipal uses. Um, if there's no water, you can't use it. It's simple as that. And so, um, 
So I like to think that what we're doing is a tremendous benefit, not only to nature, but to people's uses of that water. Yeah, I mean, this is every drop of water that falls in your valley is going down the Madison to the Missouri to the Gulf of Mexico, right? Correct. It's it's insane to think of it that way and the effect that you can have beyond your property boundaries. I, you know, just going back to the complexity real quick, I, you know, I can see on your on one of the videos a list of probably 30 different organizations and public agencies and stakeholders involved in this. And so I want to commend you and, and everyone involved. That's just a Herculean effort. I mean, I, I work on some of these projects with a few consultants, and it's it's really difficult to get things built. Um, the folks who built the pyramids and the Great Wall of China, you know, they didn't have the uh, the burden of of democracy to, <laughs> to contend with and decision making. So, um, you know, I, I recognize the complexity here and the and the difficulty of doing something like this. So, I just want to applaud you for seeing it through. Um, and and I guess I'm wondering, you mentioned um, the the fish and the fishery. This is a gold medal trout fishery right excellent excellent fishery um was that part of your intended consequence or, or result were you trying to restore uh this as an economic driver for trout fishing it's a great question so when i initially started the project uh, my, my my interest and focus was primarily on the fishery and i'll tell you why because at that time the cattle operation and that resource were not um, um, compatible. And so there was a lot of damage. Um, I didn't really, I kind of you know knew there was, but I didn't really know the extent of it. Um, and it was, it was a prized fishery and we do have some commercial use of it, which is part of our ranch business model. Um, and I knew that we would be improving the resource itself, the value of the property, and potentially the ability to monetize it to a degree. And I'm not afraid to um, bring up that element for the following reason, which is if I can't stay in business, I can't continue to do the conservation work that I'm doing. And so this is, it's one of our revenue streams. And as anybody in agriculture knows, you can't have, no pun intended, all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. Um, you, uh, you know, there are times that the agricultural markets are up, there are times they're down, as, uh, as is the case now. Um, we're in an uh, inflationary cycle. So all of the things that you use on an agricultural operation from fuel to electricity to any kind of supplies, the costs are all up. So, you know, that, that's very difficult for everybody. And, and I think most people who are looking for ways to make it work are looking for additional revenue streams. So the answer to your question is yes. I mean, I was thinking about that. I didn't know basically what that would be. And it's not what we do is not a big um, kind of uh, daily commercial operation. The usage is pretty uh, has pretty light touch, but um, that is part of it. And the people that use it, you know, not only enjoy the fishing, but they enjoy the conserved landscape. They enjoy the open spaces. They enjoy the bird life. Um, all of those things are part of the experience, and it's all what I'm trying to preserve. So, along with the restoration, we have done conservation easements to protect all of that. And to ensure that as uh, time moves forward, um, that experience will still be available for future generations. And of course, for all, you know, for the, for the uh, uh, ecological reasons that you want to preserve all of that too. Um, you know, as you well know, being in Colorado, uh, the po human population in the West is, is growing significantly. And we have impacts just, you know, what, no matter how careful we live our lives, we, we cause impacts, we demand energy, we demand water. Um, so what I'm doing is to try to try to protect from those impacts. 
And, you know, just last summer, it didn't, wasn't really as big an issue this summer, but last summer was an intense drought here. And um, many of the rivers were closed either for periods of time or for certain hours during the day because uh, they had exceeded the temperature limits that they uh, allow uh, people to fish. Um, and, and there were fires and other threats associated with that drought. And on Odell Creek, it was, didn't seem to be affected by any of that. So it's a mitigation against those impacts, those changes. And, and also, you know, I've been told by people that know more about it than I do, that healthy grasslands and wetlands store carbon. And the wetter the soil is, the more carbon is stored. And so the restoration project, though I never thought about it, uh, especially in the beginning, but even up to maybe a year ago, has a, a climate mitigation aspect. Um, whether that's maintaining water temperature, plant species, or storing carbon in the soils. Yeah. Uh, you talk about the, um, the multiple streams of revenue kind of model, and everyone that I've spoken to who's trying to enable conservation or um, farm or ranch regeneratively, everyone talks about that. Let's, let's mimic nature's resilience by creating multiple streams of revenue. You talk about mimicking bison grazing with your cattle ranching. Um, why not also mimic Mother Nature's resiliency in other ways? So I think it makes perfect sense to operate that way if we're trying to to uh, steward lands in a sustainable way. Well, I, I would agree with that. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's not a no-brainer as to how you do that. And I guess it depends on where you're physically located and what you're doing. But I will tell you that just the other day, um, I spent some time on Odell Creek um, taking the rare day off from my work here at the ranch. And in the course of a few hours of fishing, I was watched by two moose, six trumpeter swans, I saw owls, um, sandhill cranes, uh, meadow larks, uh, waterfowl. And so, um, you know, it's the, it, it, that to me is, is going, that to me is the experience. And that to me is increasingly under threat. And also um, as we develop more and more of the land um, of our planet actually, that experience is becoming rarer and rarer and, uh, or I should say increasingly rare. Um, and, you know, people, you know, look at the safari model in Africa, you know, people go to Africa and, and the revenue that is brought in, part of it goes to um, sustaining and improving those natural resources. And so I think there's demand out there for it. But, you know, beyond all of that, we're, we're not going to be here forever. And I think there's, uh, it's incumbent upon us to be responsible and to try to be great stewards and to, um, you know, as I said earlier, there's compromise involved with that. You can't really do everything that you, you may want to. But, you know, it's interesting that more and more people are doing this and they're seeing the value in it both environmentally and economically. And so what's wrong with that? You know, um, re really nothing. And by contrast, you know, I think you should one, it, it, it should be pointed out that just 60 miles down the road from me is the entrance to Yellowstone National Park. And every year they break records of attendance. So if you were yeah. to go to Yellowstone to see any of this in the summertime, you would be elbow to elbow with, um, many, many other people, which is, you know, great, but there's also something to be said for private lands where you can, you know, be there either by yourself or in a small group. And um, of course, we also have wilderness areas, but, um, you know, as I think has been identified by uh, Western Landowners Alliance and maybe U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, as this might be their statistic, 
70 plus percent of the Western United States is private lands, or maybe it's 75% of the entire United States. And, and when these lands were settled, they didn't settle on the worst land they could find. They settled on the best land so they could survive. And that best land is where there's water and vegetation and it's arable. And, um, um, and so that's where the, the fish, birds and wildlife are also. And so we have, there's a built-in um, potential conflict there that we basically moved into the best habitat and, um, and in many cases altered it, but we also have the ability to be great managers and stewards of that. And I'm encouraged because I see a lot of people doing that. And, um, you know, like myself, uh, I'm sure others would say the same thing. Um, when they first started sort of thinking about that, changing their management, doing things to enhance that habitat, um, they may have been seen as, as oddballs by um, neighbors, by the greater community around them, which you know was sort of entrenched in other thinking. But slowly but surely, I think that thinking is coming around, um, particularly when one can, as we say, look over the fence and see you know, a place like the Granger Ranches, how it's thriving and growing. Um, and that is all being driven by uh, what we've done on Abdel Creek. Well, that was uh, getting to my next question was about potential opposition. It's hard for me to really, uh, I guess, imagine the arguments against something like this coming from my own point of view. But everyone I talk to who does uh, restoration or regenerative work has this same story of the neighbors kind of shook their head or, or people had concerns of downstream users. Like what were the arguments or, or the, the chatter that you were hearing when you started doing this work? Well, I, you know, that's another great question and um, I have to think about it for a second, but um, you know, for instance, one of the, uh, you referred to the, the, the large the lengthy list of uh, partners in this project. Uh, you know, state and federal government agencies. And there was a great fear and probably still is of getting uh, involved with uh, state or federal government in that they will um, make demands that perhaps make it impossible for you to even continue um, operating your land. Um, so there was opposition to that. And, you know, I like to say that no matter what you do, there are always going to be people and, you know, whether it's a small percentage of people or large that um, don't like it, you know, that think that you're, you know, maybe you're privatizing wildlife or you're, um, you're holding back water that, um, that others have a right to downstream. Um, you know, I never really had anybody tell me directly that they didn't approve or like, approve of or like what I was doing. Um, but, you know, I heard scuttlebutt and, um, <clears throat> you know, I think as getting back to what I said earlier of this sort of, sort of cultural philosophical difference between agriculture, ranching communities and, and environmentalists. Um, Mm. Um, so I think there was some suspicion that, you know, there was a, uh, some sort of environmental plot that would then make other people's lives more difficult. Um, that wasn't the case, hasn't been the case. It also hasn't been the case that the government's told us to what we can and can't do. I mean, we did enter into conservation contracts that did spell some of that out, but they had a, uh, a lifespan of 15 years, they've come and gone. And, um, and, you know, it was a trade off. I mean, I didn't, considering what we were getting, I didn't feel like we were giving that much up. And in fact, I felt an obligation to give more um, beyond what I was obligated to do. You know, one interesting thing that did occur is I had in the early days of the project, a fisheries biologist from the state who got really excited about what we were doing and wanted to uh, plant a cutthroat trout, which is an endangered species. 
And that didn't work out because he was reassigned and um, nobody else was interested. And it also turned out it probably wasn't really suitable um, for the type of stream that Odell Creek is. But um, I started thinking about endangered species. And I thought, well, what about Arctic grayling? They're a native species um, and um, in trouble on the verge of extinction and um, in, in this part of their range anyway. And um, so, so we, we looked into that, but uh, <clears throat> I felt obligated to let my neighbors know that I was considering reintroducing an endangered species and um, could tell they weren't quite thrilled about it. And I had my own reservations um, about what that would mean. And so I put their, our, my relationship with them ahead of the species. Um, but then uh, the, uh, the listing decision came out and the species was not listed. And I remember waking up in the middle of the night going, wait a minute, now I don't have to worry about <laughs> what the neighbors think or what might happen. And um, so we went ahead and, and did some grayling reintroduction through incubators and eggs. And we don't know the outcome of it at this point, but, um, but we, we tried and we're also re reintroducing or re, yeah, reintroducing is the right word, uh, trumpeter swans, which are in um, decline. Very cool. So, you know, the pushback that you asked about, I think is just based on fear, lack of understanding and um, resistance to change. Um, you know, it's the old brown shoe phenomena that, you know, the old brown shoe's comfortable and a new pair takes some breaking in. Um, and so once again, you have to be, you know, you can make mistakes, you know, things, not everything works out the way you expect it to, but if it doesn't, then you try something else. And, yeah. um, uh, and so, you know, I, and I think that that risk of failure is what keeps people from trying some of these things, whether it's failure of the relationships um, that it takes to do this kind of work or failure of the work itself. Um, and I will just end by saying that um, because the funding has been limited and we've had to do this in phases, some of them bigger or smaller than others, uh, with each phase that we've done, both I and even the experts that are doing this work are learning. And it's not just learning about um, the sort of overall principles of restoration, but it's learning about this specific piece of land and how it functions because it's very unique. And so, um, so that's a benefit. So, you know, in, in some cases, there have been projects done by people with uh, um, incredible wealth, and they can basically just turn people loose and say, send me the bill. Uh, but I can guarantee you that those projects did not end up coming out as well as this project because of that, that, that learning experience with each and, and evaluation. And I'd like to just add that one of the very, very unique things about the Odell Creek restoration is the extent of the monitoring that's going on. In many cases, projects get done and that's it. You know, it's like, call me and let me know how things worked out. But in this case, we have people studying the, the change in avian species, uh, the plant communities, water quality, a little bit of fishery stuff, not a lot. And that's some significant monitoring that's going on. So we're adding to the knowledge base essentially. That's fantastic. I think doing this the way you're doing it, although it sounds that like it's been it's been a long and hard journey, I'm sure the the learning aspect of it is so crucial. You talked about the sort of divide between environmentalists and agriculturalists, which is strange to think about. You would think the two would be bedfellows, but to when you think about sort of conventional agriculture, you have a learned set of skills and a way of doing things that is sometimes in opposition to the type of things that you've had to learn about throughout this process. 
So I think it takes someone like you to step out into the middle ground and go, hey, I think we can make these two things work together. Um, and I guess it sounds like it takes a lot of experimentation as well. It does. A lot of it's trial by error. Um, and you have to have, you have to be sort of self-evaluated and questioning, you know, what you're doing and how it's coming out and what it means. And to me, that's a, that's a steady continual process that I'm learning from it constantly. And, you know, to, and that's, that's the most rewarding part, actually. Um, you know, I, I, I know it's corny and I've used this before because it is corny. But this project has not only been a landscape transformation, but it's been a transformation of people and thinking. And um, so now that we're almost 20 years in, um, because of what we've done, the thinking's changed a little bit. And um, that's, that's where it has to start. And, uh, and, I, and I think that, you know, we, we all, I think, I, I think one thing that existed was still in existence when I started that's probably um, on its way out is this idea that we're an island here in the West. You know, I mean, I, my, the nearest town to me is Ennis, Montana. I don't know what the population is now, but I'm guessing, you know, maybe a thousand people. And so the problems of the world are distant. But now that the population is growing, you know, uh, closing in on us, and I'm sure this is true in other parts of the West, we realize we don't live in a bubble. And so the thinking's kind of changing, you know, and, and the, the um, challenges of maintaining a ranch are changing. And so, you know, it's like the dinosaurs, you either have to change or you're done, right? And so, and I'm not saying that everybody has to do what I've done, or everybody has to, you know, put environmental concerns first. I mean, we live in a free country. You're, uh, you know, free to think and do what you want. Um, but I think it's becoming more evident that we we are not isolated from the the challenges of the greater world around us. And so, how do we respond to that? And um, this has basically been how I've responded. But, but I have to say that, you know, this is, I'm not, I'm not doing this because I think everybody should be doing it. Although, you know, if other people want to do it, I think, you know, that's where you get the incremental um, or, or I should say the exponential benefit of, of seeing uh, what, what happens when we restore land and water. You know, I, I can only say that it's been a good thing for us and others might want to look at it as an option. Yeah, and, and every place is going to have its own unique restoration needs. I think it's more about sort of embarking on that process of figuring out how to and, and, and what needs to be restored. And um, I don't know, it's really I get really excited about this kind of work. I just have one last question for you, Jeff. You talked about you like to kind of go against the grain a little bit and think outside the box. Um, after this long and, and continued successful project, what else do you have in mind? Do you have any other uh, any other things you're going to be trying out up there on your land? Well, you know, I mean, I've thought about wind. I've thought about solar. I don't know if that's ever going to happen, you know, in my time here on the ranch. I think since you've asked the question, what I see happening, um, because I have a, uh, there's a manager who's part of our, leading our team, who's terrific at this is, is sort of a, a focus on regenerative agriculture, regenerative grazing to use the cattle to um, improve the health of the land itself. Yeah. And uh, we're, we're just a year into that, but the, the results are quite remarkable. And of course we had a, we had a year that was um, supportive of those efforts because we had some great rains early in the season um so we'll see but um i think we have more uh stream and wetland work ahead of us and um you know we're just going to try keeping the ball moving down the field basically i love it <laughs> uh you know i i 
I am the chairman of Western Landowners Alliance. My term's coming to an end. I think I'll stay engaged there and, and try to be a um, small part of um, whatever uh, of, of seeking solutions to the uh, challenges that we have ahead, not just as ranchers, by the way, but as, um, as, as human beings. And um, I think that's what, what interests me. You know, as I said before, <laughs> you, you, you probably don't subscribe to uh, broadcast cable, satellite streaming or, or newspapers if you don't know, if you're not like sort of curious about why all of a sudden we're having terrible wildfires and why we're having um, historic storms that are devastating people uh, and, and land. Um, and so, you know, I, there, there are real significant challenges ahead. I don't even think we know what the challenges are yet. And I would like to um, be part of, um, part of somehow trying to deal with that, trying to change that. And, um, you know, but my role, of course, is going to be very, very small, but I want to be involved. Well, I think that's well said, and um, you know I'm supportive of of Western landowners and um, the type of people and projects that they're highlighting, which is how I found out about you, partially. So uh, I think listeners uh, should should definitely check out the video that they did on you, which I believe is called Stewardship with Vision. It was their first installment, and you and this project were featured, and and you can kind of see the impact of this work. Um, also, before I forget, I, if you're getting into the regenerative um, work up there, if you haven't come across Gabe Brown, he wrote the book Dirt to Soil, um, where he made the regenerative switch up there in, near Bismarck on a big cow-calf cow operation. So um, that'd be a great resource for you guys, I think. I'll check it out. Appreciate letting me know about it. Absolutely. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate what you're doing, and I know you've received a lot of attention about this, and um, and I know you're not seeking out attention, so I, I certainly appreciate you taking an hour to talk to me. Well, I appreciate your interest, and I've enjoyed talking to you, and it's really interesting to share this. You know, if I don't talk about this kind of stuff uh, in, in short order, because it's almost been 20 years, there, there are certain things I'm going to forget about. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it's good to have a record. So thank you very much for your interest. And I really enjoyed talking to you. I appreciate it very much. Likewise. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Take care.